mechanical okay. theatre player. Yeah. Um, uh, major laser, and he gets the whole crowd going, and he gets girls on stage twerking. You know, there's a massive party, and he at Victoria Warehouse one night, he got the whole crowd, and we're talking three thousand people in the main room. Everybody took their tops off, including most of the girls. They're all <laughs> swinging their tops around their heads. And then he said, right, everyone runs to the left, and everyone on stage all runs left. And I'm looking at 3,000 people thinking, oh my God, please don't <laughs> run to the left, I'll save me. And then, like, they all run to the left, and they, well, my heart was in Hello, boys and girls. I hope everyone is staying safe during lockdown. Last month, I spoke to Kim O'Brien. Kim is the Operations Director at the Warehouse Project and Parklife Festival. She also sits on the advisory panel for the Manchester Nighttime Economy. Growing up in Manchester, I attended lots of the events and parties put on by Kim and her team, so it was really interesting to hear how she went about organising and arranging these parties. I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation and some of Kim's fantastic stories. My name is Kim O'Brien, I'm the Operations Director for Warehouse Project. Um, that's the main business that I work on, um, although I am involved with many other projects. Yeah. And, and you're spending, obviously spending time at home, but how has it been, how are you keeping busy and, and what is it you're doing? Um, so at first, the transition from normal life, shall we say, into lockdown sent me into a bit of a spin because we on Tuesday, well, on the 17th of March, we closed the office, sent yeah. everybody home. And then as the person responsible for directing the office and giving people tasks and keeping everybody on track, I didn't really know what to give them. Yeah. And none of us really did. You know, we didn't know if we'd be off work for a week or two weeks or a month. I don't think we anticipated anywhere close to two months. No, um, no. So at first, it was very unnerving just going home, letting the team go home and... Um, and just all kind of tread water and do a few zooms just to keep in touch with each other. Yeah. Um, then after about a week, we realised that, or maybe two weeks, the furlough process came in. Yeah. So we got the team together and we put um, the majority of the team on furlough, apart from the key people who needed to kind of stay operational. So that was myself, um, one of the guys who does bookings, Sasha and Sam. Yeah. Uh, the two company directors and um, somebody doing um, social media. So there's about five of us, five or six of us still working, but we let we put ten people on furlough. Yeah. So from that point, then it was more of a case of right, okay, there actually isn't that much to do. So the main thing is everybody needs to keep safe and well, keep their uh, mental health in a good state, and um, you know, as and when something needs to be done, we'll kind of you know, we'll let anybody know. So then from that point on, it became a case of structuring my life, really. Yeah. No, I didn't have to direct 15 people every day. Um, it was more a case of, right, how am I going to keep in a really good state so that when the work, when we can start moving the cogs again and the wheels start turning, I'm in a very good state to do that. Yeah. Um, so I set a schedule and I, I try to follow that schedule every day. So that involves getting up early. 6.30 maybe, 7 o'clock, yeah. um, getting out, going for a run, doing some exercise. Um, I started to juice quite a lot. Okay. So being around the house, I just do a trip every Monday or Tuesday to the fruit and veg shop in yeah. Chilton. 
yeah. buy loads of fruit and veg, and then mm. every day just try and have as maybe ten portions of fruit and veg a day. Okay, so, wow, that's really good. Yeah, you can easily do that with juicing. Yeah, yeah, you know, definitely. Have an actual juicer. Um, so and then splitting the splitting my days work into maybe ten till twelve, having a break, and then doing maybe one till four. Um, and really, it's been to keep a sense of normality. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think it's. Um, at, I think yeah, it's really. Week seven and eight, I'm gonna have to re- reassess and do a new schedule because I've kind of worn this one thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but you're right. If I think if you have a, a, a schedule, a bit of a program, it's it's a lot easier to fill your day, isn't it? A hundred percent. I think it needs to be broken down into sections. You know, um, you know, if you don't, I found personally, if I don't have a plan, I get a, a bit lost. My yeah. brain likes told what to do. Yeah. No, I agree, definitely. And I, um, I mean, I'm very, um, I like systems, I yeah. like order. <laughs> yeah. So I have, I have a daily spreadsheet that I made for myself. Okay. And it's got all the tasks I want to do in a day. Um, and I've got a little tick and a cross. And at the end of each day, before I have my dinner, I go through my spreadsheet and I put a tick into every tick cell that I put. Good. And it, the only reason I do it is because it gives me a sense of achievement. Yeah, so even course. if I've not done much, I go, oh, well, there's ticks in half the boxes. So <laughs> yeah. It's a positive, isn't it? Yeah, no, yeah, it's, it's... You know. um, And then I can quite easily see the things that I'm not doing every day. So I've tried to meditate. I struggle to sit still. Yeah. Um, I've always wanted to meditate, but I've always found it difficult to allocate time. So I've tried to do the Headspace app through this yeah. process. Good. Um, but it always seems to be the thing that I ignore on my to-do list. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I find I'm looking at my spreadsheet, thinking I haven't meditated for four days. So this is a work in progress for me. No, that's good. Well, I I use the Headspace app because sometimes I really struggle going to sleep, and it, I, right. I find it really good before you go to bed or in bed, and and put it on. And it just it help helps you sleep or it helps me sleep anyway. Do you listen to the sleep section? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. like the stories. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Me too. <laughs> they're really good. They are really good. They're really helpful. Oh, I, I love them. Yeah, they're really just the, the monotone voice and just the, the stories. I think they're great. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. It's good. And I, I, I guess it's just like, like you're saying, you know, for your mental health, it just, just keeps you, yeah, just, just keeps you kind of focused and positive. And, um, yeah, I've also tried not to drink. Um, because I, you know, um, again, before this process, I like to go out and have drinks, you know, yeah. I like to have a glass of wine at home in the evening sometimes, you know, if I've had a very busy day, I find it's just a quick switch off, I'll have a nice glass of red wine with dinner or after dinner, um, but through this process, I've just, I made a decision, after the, maybe the, the second week of great weather and gin and tonics in the garden <laughs> in the afternoon, <laughs> yeah. I just made a decision, right, if I'm going to get through this really well, I need to maybe not drink. Yeah. So... I have done a month without alcohol. Oh, wow. Okay, that's good. That's good, Gary. Yeah. However, this weekend, I'm going to have... It's bank holiday. <laughs> it's bank holiday, and United We Stream are doing a Hacienda yeah, yeah. classical 12-hour party, so I'm going to allow myself a couple of gin and tonics in the garden. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. That's good. Well, look, you, you touched on the United We Stream. Have, have you? How much have you been involved in that? And, and... Have you been following... Yeah, yeah, it's been good. It's been. Good. I can't remember whether it was last week or the week before, but there was like crafty cuts and DJ Yoda, uh, and that, that, yeah. that was really good. It was really good. So for me too, um, 
again, living on my own, it's given me something to look forward to at the weekend. Yeah. Um, so I'm involved to the degree that um, anything, obviously I work with Sasha Lord. Um, Sasha's one of my closest friends and he's mentored me since I was 21, um, <clears throat> which was never something we intentionally set out to do. It's just, it just, it's the way it worked out. I'm very, very lucky. Um, so anything that Sasha does really, I am his right-hand person. So I'm just moral support, whatever's needed, I'm here sort of thing. Um, so Sasha is doing this with the mayor's office uh, GMCA, um, Great Manchester Combined Authority, um, to do what they can to support people in need in in our nighttime economy in Greater Manchester. Um, so he's obviously been programming and putting on these amazing shows, and I'm just there to support. Um, I am on the panel. Um, he's pulled together a task force of. Um, of people working within the nighttime economy to um, look at recovery and have discussions and hopefully shape what recovery for our industry could look like. Yeah. Um, but also, we will kind of be a panel to um, give out the money that's been raised. So I think there's maybe 15 of us on the on the panel between 10 and 15 of us, um, and we will look at all the applications of who is asking for funds and we'll give it, you know, we'll split it between us and we'll make decisions and give it out based on a criteria that's been set. Um, I'm also involved in the merchandise. I'm helping them a bit with merchandising because I've done merchandising <laughs> for web project forever. So yeah. um, I'm just here and available to help basically, you know, yeah. because I'm close to the project, I'm kind of a readily available, helpful hand. Yeah. Well, no, it's really good. It's good. And, and, and it's really hey. fun. It is so much fun, isn't it? You know, I'm, I'm looking, and a lot of people I know, and it's probably similar for yourself, are watching it every weekend. Yeah, definitely, definitely. We're, we're texting and FaceTiming and, oh, did you just see that DJ? And yeah. It's a lot, a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's good. It is really good. Uh, well, look, you should, you, should be, you should be very proud of it. It's uh it's it's a great project to be working on and it's helping everyone you know like you're saying it's something to look forward to because uh, i guess there's only so much netflix and movies you can watch isn't there there is yeah there is and i'm open to any suggestions for netflix because i've run i've run short <laughs> <laughs> yeah. okay good all right good um all right well look let's uh, let's rewind a bit where where did you where did you grow up and 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 what was manchester like during i take it you grew up in manchester I didn't, oh, actually. Right. Sorry. <laughs> um, I have an, an, an unplaceable accent, I think. Um, <laughs> I grew up in a town called Polton the Files. I don't know okay. if you've heard of it. No. It's, in, it's, uh, it's not far from Blackpool. Okay. So it's in the FY postcode, which means it is technically Blackpool. Okay. However, when you, when you grow up in Polton the Files, you tend to say, oh, no, it's not really Blackpool, but it kind of technically <laughs> is. <laughs> um, so it's in the countryside. Um, about an hour on the train from Manchester. My mum's French, and my dad was a Manc from Gorton. Okay. Um, my mum's from Paris, so I spent all my holidays in France, in Paris, with my family. Wow. Um, and grew up, um, so most of my family speak French. Not many people in my family speak English, so, um, you know, Christmases, all the rest of it, I have to switch my brain back onto French, which <laughs> as I get older, harder to remember. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in Polton the Files, and before uh, I applied for uni in Manchester and um, joined the tourism management course when I was eighteen, which I absolutely loved. Um, but before I came to uni, I was always into music, um, probably because my mum is very much into music. Um, 
Okay. Funnily enough, being a little French, you know, a little Parisian woman, she's really into reggae. Okay. <laughs> so I grew up listening to a lot of reggae um, in the house. And there was always music on, so I grew up very much into music. And I kind of gravitated to a group of friends in Polton Hyde who were also into music. We must have all heard each other talking in the pub or something yeah. about music. And I didn't so much hang around with my friends from school anymore. I gravitated to this group of people who were all into music, DJs or just, but we would talk about music at the weekend rather than going into Blackpool for a club night, you know, yeah. sit in the pub and what music. So then... But when I was like 17, 18, we'd get, into, we'd get into cars at the weekend and we'd drive to Manchester and we'd go to Music Box. Yeah. Um, because Music Box at the time seemed to be the only place that we knew that played good music. So techno music, some Chicago house. Yeah. None of us would drink. We'd just drive for the music and then we'd drive back at the end of the night. Yeah. Um, so then I came to Manchester and went to uni and fell into the Manchester University kind of scene and it struck me as so bohemian yeah. bohemian and um chilled out compared to blackpool where i grew up it was just this amazing relaxed place loads of pubs jukeboxes and my friends and i again i i kind of gravitated to a group of people who were really into music we'd go to the pubs and we'd play the jukeboxes and just listen to music you know we'd hang around and it was all about music um so Throughout university, I, I did four years at Manmet, um, and um, I worked flyering for various music businesses. Um, I did the most work for Sankey's, which is where I met Sash. Yeah. Um, and um, he was very clever because he had the, all my group of friends, we all did the same thing. So we'd go to university, and at the weekend we'd fly for music venues. Um, we get paid at midnight on a Friday night in Sankey's. <laughs> <laughs> Very Obviously, good. we all ended up spending our Friday nights in there. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. And so, so for me, I, you know, music in my youth was just very much, Manchester in my youth was very much, you know, music box. I discovered Sankey's um, when I was about 19 or 20. I can't remember exactly how old I was. Sasha did this huge the first ever legal warehouse warehouse party. Um, it was for about 10,000 people in a warehouse in Ancoats, which is no longer there. Um, and that was the first time I experienced anything like warehouse project. It was, it was a really long time ago. It was like 96 or something like that. Sure, sure. Then, I can't remember what year it was. Sasha <clears throat> would correct me there. Um, and then as soon as I finished university I had been working for Sasha Flyering for years um, and on some of his music events and I had applied for a job at the French Embassy in London oh wow that's a, that's a, that's a yeah. big difference yeah <laughs> it was a big difference and I was I was toying with the idea that when he wasn't great I heard from somebody else I knew who worked in London who knew somebody working there it had a high staff turnover and it wasn't necessarily as great a job as it sounded and Sasha said, it was the week I graduated, actually. Um, I got a 2-1 in my degree, which I was over the moon about. Because yeah. I, um, the, of the four years of university, I wasn't always very good at going in. You know, <laughs> <I had> the, <laughs> <laughs> of the four years, I, I really grafted for maybe 18 months. Mm -hmm. um, so then the week I graduated, Sasha said, well, there's an opening in my bar in Fallowfield called Sofa. We need an assistant manager. And I'd never managed anything before. And yeah. I thought... So it's a really good opportunity. It's a massive challenge. And I remember having a coffee with a friend of mine who really wanted the job as well. 
and he said, no, I don't think you should go for it. He said, it's really outside your comfort zone. He said, um, I don't think it's for you. He said, it's, you know, I'm really not sure. And, and I now know it's because he wanted the job. Um, so I said, all right, I'll take it, you know. I, I'll, I would like the opportunity. But like I said, I've never done anything like that before. I've never been in a management role. Yeah. Um, and... I just worked really hard. I was on a three-month probation, so they said, we'll see how you get on. Did my three months, and um, the person who was above me as GM um, handed his notes in and went to do something else, and they were looking for someone else, and I said to Sash, could I maybe have a go at being GM? If you've not got anybody else, I'm here. I'm learning the ropes anyway. Yeah. It was like a little world. When you run a a venue like that, a pub, so a small pub or a bar, you've got X amount of employees and your entire week and your world revolves around this one small venue. So I was like, I'm already running this building, this small building. I've got my 10 employees. I'm getting a handle of the browser. So I could maybe have a go. And they said, okay, well, um, Sasha had a business partner in the, in the venture at the time and his business partner would come and sit with me once a week on a Monday and we'd compile a list for the whole week. And this list would go on pages, the amount of stuff that needed to be done to this building, <laughs> the amount of things I needed to learn, you know, um, it was a never-ending list, it was, and it was early spring, I was 21 at the time, um, and it was spring, and this list saw me through till September, you know, um, and I just got my head down, and summer's a quiet time in Fallowfield, yeah. course, also, for it's in Fallowfield, the students all go home in summer, so. And, what, the, and was, was this, was this sofa opposite Owens Park? It was. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, so, um, so yeah, I was. It must have been two thousand and one, two thousand and two, something like that. Um, and I just worked as hard as I could. I basically put every waking moment into this job. Yeah. And it wasn't. It was well paid because it wasn't. It's because I've been given an opportunity, and I really wanted to do well. Yeah. So, you know, if I was asked, if I was, they asked me to do thirty-five hours a week, I did sixty, yeah. and I didn't yeah. because it, I wanted to deliver well, um, and that's kind of where I started. That's good. That's good. And uh, I, I guess at that time, when at that time, Fallowfield is very different to what it is now because the the students hadn't moved to the city centre at that point, had they? Fallowfield was this hub of like activity yeah. i remember like freshers week it was like uh it's like being outside a man united game there's just students everywhere on freshers week it in was brilliant, wasn't it? Yeah. it was great you know actually when i was a student before all that i used to work at the orange grove behind the bar. Uh, okay yes yeah, yeah i've actually worked behind the bar since i was about since i was old enough to work really you know i've worked in the local pub in my village where i grew up and you know um I've always enjoyed that sort of environment, hospitality environment, um, but Fallowfield was booming, you know, Friday nights, they'd be queuing out the door to get into the sofa, yeah. um, we'd do, you know, cocktails, I would program different DJs, you know, and have different music going on all the time, it was just such a great scene, yeah. um, all the club nights in town would sell tickets in Fallowfield as well, so on a Friday night, we would have queues of people coming in to buy their tickets over the bar for Sankey's in town. Yeah. Um, and that's how people bought their tickets back then. You know, you didn't buy online. You would go to all the bars of Fallowfield, let's say, and buy your ticket over the bar, and then you'd all get the ball. Yeah. Oh, I think I've lost you there. Yeah, yeah, you're back. Yeah, yeah. No, well, yeah. That, that, that's exactly what it was. I, I can remember going to Gaff's and 
and buying tickets for gigs <laughs> and, <laughs> and all that type of thing. And yeah, me and too. You buy a couple of cans of beer and yeah, get Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. But, but yeah, okay. And 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 describe to uh, people who who never went to Sankey's what what Sankey's was like at that time because I remember it. Friday nights there was like a drum and bass night which we used to go to and then there was house night well there's pretty much every DJ from around the planet came to Sankey's at some point in their life yeah. but, but it, it was just it was incredible um they would do some Thursdays very sporadic Thursdays that was always something a little bit different maybe hip-hop and um maybe a bit of drum and bass or you know they used to do I don't know if you ever went to the big drum and bass nights that they used to put on there yeah, I can um, remember one of my first drum and bass gigs was at Sankey's and it was uh, uh, Mickey Finn and DJ yeah. Hype and I can just remember coming out and thinking, oh my God, my ears must be bleeding. It was so it loud. It was so good. It was so good. There was a night called Step Back. There was a night called Viagra Falls. There was a night, uh, all sorts of different, brilliant, you know, drum and bass nights. Yeah. Those scenes at the time were great. It was alive. Yeah. I remember being in there one Thursday night for a moody drum and bass night and then <laughs> it was absolutely packed and at one point the lights all got switched on and the general manager of the time, who I worked with after that at the first year of Warehouse Project, um, they'd been like some moody gangs had got in and he just was like, Right, everybody else <laughs> He wasn't afraid of anybody. He just kicked the whole club out because he you know, he didn't want any any funny business going down, so he just threw everyone out. Um but Sankey's was great. It was it was so exciting, you know. Ancoats at the time was like no man's land. It was. Um, uh, you know, it's it's crazy when it, when you see what Ancoats has become now because if you remember it, well, um, uh, as you do, you remember it then, you, you wouldn't leave your car in Ancoats. It was... Uh... You wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. It was really dodgy, you know, and your taxis would drop you off somewhere near Sankey's, you know. Yeah. Quite often, drop us off on the main road and we'd walk down. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. And you just arrive at this warehouse in the middle of nowhere, and I remember the only other venue that I knew of in Ancoats was someplace called the Red Door ah, down okay. the road. Yes. But yeah. I never went. No, no. I was a bit sad. <laughs> Neither did I, to um, but um, you just go through the big doors of the courtyard into the courtyard at Sankey's and it was just this amazing experience you know and it's what we know today you know of the club scene you know the amazing people come together and the euphoria and seeing artists who you've always wanted to see um, I remember before I started uni I knew about this artist called Rozelle he's a beatbox yeah. from America and I, I thought he was the most incredible artist ever I'd never heard or seen anything like it and being an American artist I didn't know you could see them in person in a club I just it hadn't dawned on me until I came to <laughs> and then I saw somewhere that or I heard that he was doing a Thursday night at Sankey's and it just blew my mind that this this artist which seemed completely untouchable I could go to Manchester yeah, yeah. go to Sankey's and watch him on a Thursday yeah. it was just brilliant um I made great friendships in Sankey's, you know, long-lasting friendships. Um, Sasha and Sam. Um, Sam used to do all the bookings at Sankey's, and he, he, um, him and Sasha obviously went on to start a Warehouse Project. Um, Sam, we made friends, you know, all those years ago, and then we all came, you know, started Warehouse Project. Um, Sasha, obviously, some of my best friends today I met in Sankey's, yeah. you know, just lifelong friendships. That's good. That's fantastic. That's good. It 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 was always a, well, I always remember it as a bit of a, a special place in Manchester, and it was always it was 
it's always madness when you got in there. So. <laughs> it was madness. It was madness. Um, but, you know, it's kind of led to where we are today. You know, without yeah. Sankey's, there would have been no Wales project. Yeah, no, it's good. It's good. All right. Well, look, if for for, for anyone who's been living under a rock, uh, what what is the warehouse project? <laughs> um, so the warehouse project is pretty much fifteen years old now. Um, we started in two thousand and six, um, and it's a series of music events <clears throat> that run from September to um, New Year's Day, and. It was, um, I remember when Sasha had the first idea for Warehouse Project, we were driving around Fallowfield in his car. Well, I think we were doing, a, we used to do um, flyer drops. So we would kind of get in the car on a Friday, early evening, and we'd do flyer drops for maybe Sankey's or work, Sofa or whatever it was. At the time, flyers were a big thing. Yeah. Um, but I've had this idea for this series of events, and um, it's going to be like a big Warehouse Project the big warehouse party we did years ago, but we'll do maybe two or three of them. It's going to be massive. And I remember sitting in his car, and it was just an idea at the time, and I said, well, I've been running, so I was 23 then. I said, I've been running sober for two years. I would like to be involved. Yeah. Whatever that looks like, yeah. if you do this thing, I want to be involved. And so he said, yeah, yeah, sure. And it followed, and he had left Sankey's in 2005. He um, sold his share to his partner um, and moved on to do other things, and... Sam and Kirsty, two of the people who worked there at the time, um, also left and they decided to, to start Warehouse Project. So um, so basically, it followed like the student um, term, the student, you know, um, winter months. Yeah. So the students would arrive in September, Freshers' Week, Warehouse Project would start around Freshers' Week, and it would run up until New Year's Day. And the idea was... Um, to keep it fresh, if you have a venue that you run all year round, it gets boring. Yeah. You know, it gets tight. People don't have the same urgent desire to come. So we thought, well, we'll do something which runs over. To be honest, in the early, the first year, the idea was to, to do a handful of shows. Oh, okay. So I had the idea, sat down with Sam and Kirsty, and Sam went off and booked 20 odd shows. So all of a sudden, we didn't have a venue. Yeah. We had 20 shows that they'd sold on a promise of these pictures of amazing venues. <laughs> um, so then they were like, oh, we're going to have to find a venue to put these shows in. And um, so I think the first year maybe we did 25 shows in Boddington's Brewery. And it was every Friday and Saturday, the odd Thursday. And it was just something that people had never ex really experienced before. We were selling maybe three and a half thousand tickets a night. Um, it was massive. It felt like a festival, although most people coming didn't really understand what festivals were. And you know, I think the first night we put on Public Enemy. I think from memory, I need to check. My memory's terrible. <laughs> um, and that first winter just flew by. So for myself, well, just going back to your, your point about what is Wales Project. We've then duplicated that every year since. Yeah. So we've run a win. And the idea is on 1st of Jan, we just go dark. So we turn the website off. We don't do any more promo, no socials. And we just don't say a word about Wales projects until July when we then launch the next winter season. Yeah. And it just gives us, gives people time to get an appetite again for the next winter. And it gives us time to do the bookings and, um, 
look at who's fresh and what people are going to want to see the next winter. And this formula has just worked. Um, it's been copied a lot, obviously, since then. So many people do this sort of thing now. It happens everywhere. But, you know, we were probably, we were definitely the first to do that. Um, so, yeah, so that's that's Warehouse Project. Yeah. Um, now, I, I remember going to, well, I only went once to the Boddington's uh, gigs and... I can, I can remember that there was like an empty car park next to it where you could park your car and I can yeah. remember my friend at the time he had a polo and I can remember getting out of this polo and he, he was locking it and it was that loud my friend's polo <laughs> was just shaking like the mirrors the, the the windows and I thought holy shit um but it oh, was it was it's, great it was fantastic it was amazing so um so I was GM of Sofa in Fallowfields when the winter that it started. So this was 2006. And I said to Sash, I would like to, I want to, I want to run the bars there. And he said, what are you doing, Sofa? And we're opening a rave in Cheatham Hill. Yeah. I'm not sure if the right person for the job. <laughs> I need somebody who's tough enough to be able to manage a rave in Cheatham Hill. So I said, okay, fine. Well, can I be assistant? And he said, yes. So I run Sofa six days a week I had an assistant manager then I brought an assistant in and then I would get into my car at eight o'clock on a Friday night and I'd drive up Princess Parkway yeah. and Boddington's yeah. and I would then jump on and help at Boddington's so assistant manager for year one um, and I remember the nerves and the minute I'd get into my car and drive I was so <laughs> nervous I like my like the adrenaline and I'd turn up at Boddington's Brewery and they'd open, you know, they'd open the gate to let me in, to drive in. Um, and they'd be this, they'd, I'd hear the bass from a mile away. Yeah. And they had a, huge, I don't know if you remember, they had a huge searchlight. Yeah, yeah, that's this, right. Like, searchlight <laughs> sweeping the, the clouds. Yeah. And I would just be so intensely nervous um, and excited. And then I'd work all night and I had a, every Saturday off. So then I could start, you know, I'd be the first one in on a Saturday. And the guy above me, um, wasn't really one for paperwork or organization so it was easy for me i was like i'll do it all yeah. so straight away from day one week one buddington's i was doing all the ordering all the rotors all the comms with the staff the staff rotors on the wall in sofa i'd hold meetings there um and it was just a good platform for me so in 2007 he decided to go and do something else because he had his own things that he wanted to do and I was there and I'd spent year one as his assistant so, so it was just natural for me to then become GM of Warehouse Projects in 2007. Yeah. It, it was just natural, everything was natural, you know. In 2007-2008 we didn't have anything else going on apart from Warehouse Projects. Um, we did temporarily, we did six months in Paradise Factory in 2008 okay. yeah. to keep us busy in the spring but aside from that, you know, it was all about the winter. So we spent a couple of years just finding our feet, really, you know, learning how to, you know, just get into grips with warehouse projects, which was just amazing. Yeah, no, it's cool. It's it's, it's a really, uh, it's really impressive setup. And then wh when did it move to underneath the train station? So 2007. So okay. we did one year at Boddington's and then Boddington's was being knocked down. Yeah. So the, the landlord, Mr. Tishby, we, we said to him, have you got anywhere else? And it just so happened he owns Store Street yeah. car park. So we kind of had a look at lots of places, but Store Street was just perfect. So 
we moved into Store Street spring of 2007 and then <clears throat> stayed there until 2012 yeah. when we moved to Victoria Warehouse. And the reason we moved to Victoria Warehouse was we'd done all these years in Store Street and Store Street had evolved year by year. We'd added bars, added rooms, improved the sound system, we'd built walls, we did all sorts. Um, and we obviously discovered Victoria Warehouse, which at the time was just an empty shell. Um, I think it was an old mill before, or an old packing, you know, yeah. I can't remember what it was before, but it wasn't functional as a venue. So we yeah. went and we met the landlord and we helped them develop it. So we said, well, you want to put bars here, you want to um, knock out pillars here, this will create a dance floor, put acoustic walls, and we helped develop it basically. And we did two years. So I think we did about 60 shows in Victoria Warehouse um, over 2012-2013, which were our most challenging years. Yeah. Um, we decided to move back for the next season to Store Street, um, and then we had a few more wonderful years in Store Street because it is an excellent venue. Yeah. Um, we went from, you know, we went from a 2,000 capacity venue at Store Street to a 5,000 capacity venue at Victoria Warehouse. Yeah. Um, and we experienced the changes in when you're trying to sell a 2,000 tickets, it's your diehard music fans. Yeah. When you go to 5,000, it attracts a lot of tourists as well. Sure. So for us, you know, was, we didn't quite enjoy um, the new crowd that we had. You know, there was a lot of challenges with yeah. that many people. You know, my job became a lot of managing crime and disorder, working with the police. You know, I had to pass running the day-by-day -day show things to my team. Yeah. And I dealt, I dealt with um, mainly kind of police authorities, that sort of thing, councils, you know. Um, so it was an, a learning experience, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess I guess you you were dealing with the serious stuff as opposed to the the, the the stuff you enjoyed day to day. That is exactly the point. So we really enjoyed putting on parties up until we moved to Victoria Warehouse. Yeah. And then it became a different game. Yeah. It became very, very intense, very serious, not so much fun anymore. Yeah. Um, so we decided this is not probably for us right now. You know, we, we're going to... Maybe it was the time. Maybe it was the time, yeah. you know... Um, scene and people who were going out at the time and the sorts of music that were out there but it just it wasn't it wasn't harmony for us you yeah. know we just had to move back to store street and find harmony again which we did yeah well St store street was a great is a great venue and I can, I can remember i never went to victoria warehouse but i went to a few of the store street parties and uh yeah it was it was good it was fun it was it was yeah it was crazy <laughs> You know, there's something absolutely magical, and maybe I'm biased, but about a huge venue with incredible production, incredible lights, you know, yeah. it is just something else. I remember I used to walk into the main room of Victoria Warehouse, and it would be pitch black, and there'd be nobody in yet, and the lights, the lighting rig was so insane. It was like looking up at the stars. Yeah. <laughs> and I could sometimes stand there and just be like, this is just overwhelming. You know, it was just like, took your breath away at what the space you were in yeah, um, and yeah. some of the shows there you know when you've got thousands of people in a room and everybody's on the same vibe yeah. watching incredible yeah. artists you know i'll never forget some of those moments but when it comes to running a, an operation we're much we were much happier at store street yeah no i can imagine i can imagine and and, and what are your standout moments or, or your favorite uh, moments of warehouse project because you must have a, a huge list of them 
I've got so many. <laughs> <laughs> if I um, if I if my memories were like a photo album and I could go back through all the albums, <laughs> there'd be so many that I've forgotten. <laughs> I really wish I'd taken more pictures. Um, yeah. But standout memories for me. Um, so I really love Faithless. Okay. Yeah. It was another another one of those moments for me, like um, Rosel. I never thought I'd see. Um, Maxi Jazz and Faithless so up close. Yeah. And the beauty of Store Street was you could be five meters away. So obviously being part of the team that worked on the shows, I could always sneak into the front of the pit. So yeah. I could be like two and a half two and a half meters away from my favourite artists. Yeah. Um, so Faithless was just mind blowing for me. Um now Rogers is and Chic are always going to be one of the best yeah. vibes, best feelings, best experiences we could ever have. Um and turning up to the venue and when there's artist sound checking is always quite exciting. Yeah. You know, it'll be like eight o'clock and there's people waiting outside and you get through the door and lock it again behind you so they can't get in. And then you walk into the main room and your favourite artists are just practising. Um, and they're testing the sound so sometimes the bass will come out really loud and it's just very exciting. Um, but that, but that, remember, must, that, that must be quite a surreal moment if there's, a, there's an artist that you've looked up to or you, you're a fan of you're pretty much in an empty warehouse bar, I don't know, a handful of people or 10, 20 people and, and they're going mad for it on on the stage. Yeah, yeah. it is. You know, I remember um, a few standout memories, um, which don't seem like a big deal, but they're just stuck in my memory. Um, I remember pulling up at the venue one Friday night, let's say, and security opened the door and I drove my mini through Store Street, past the stage into the back, yeah. and Apex Twin was sound checking on the main stage as I was like driving me past, and, and the bass was so loud, my whole car was shaking, and I remember just thinking, this is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, another moment, another good moment sound checking was um, on the night when we had Sheik, Johnny Marr just turned up with his, with his guitar, wow. and He'd obviously spoken to Nell before because they're friends, um, but he was just there and he gigged throughout the night with him. He went on stage and they played together and um, it was incredible. Um, another standout memory was when Florence and the Machine, um, Florence came to play at Warehouse, but we didn't know who she was really at the time. Yeah. And she had this big like ghostly dress on, like a really big like um, doily type dress. Yeah. And she was on the stage and we were trying to set up, and she was just howling, like making all sorts of weird noises. And we were like, who is that girl on stage? Somebody get her off. She's so annoying. Absolutely, <laughs> Florence. Oh, wow. Uh, that's impressive. That's really impressive. <laughs> yeah, other, I could go on, and I won't go on, but I'll give you one more. Um, <laughs> another great memory was um, Major Laser. So okay. a guy called Diplo. Yeah. Um, part of major laser and he gets the whole crowd going and he gets girls on stage twerking you know there's a massive party and he at victoria warehouse one night he got the whole crowd and we're talking three thousand people in the main room everybody took their tops off including most of the girls they're all swinging their tops around their heads and then he said right everyone runs to the left and everyone on stage all runs left and i'm looking at three thousand people thinking oh my god please don't, don't. run to the left <laughs> And then, like, they all ran to the left, and they, well, my heart was in my throat, yeah. and then they all ran to the right, but they were, everybody was fine, there were no issues, but it was just one of those moments yeah. when you're like, <laughs> that, that is mental, that, that, that's pretty mental. Yeah, 
That's good. That's cool. All right, good. Well, look, it, so- it sounds like uh, they- they've always been a lot of fun to work on and, and-, and some great times that-, that you've had there. Yeah, it's been it's been an amazing journey. It's been very testing. It's been a lot of fun. Um, I've worked with a great group of people who've become friends. You know, we've been on a massive journey, um, you know, and I-, I suppose with what's going on at the minute with the virus, it gives you time to stop and pause and look back. And also reflect on the future. And I really, you know, I think everyone's going to be so ready to start creating amazing things in the future as well, you know, so that we've got a lot to look forward to. And how, how, how do you think, obviously, with, with the current situation, that how, look, with social distancing, how, how does that affect projects like warehouse projects and, and you know, and yeah. nightclubs in general? Well, it's very difficult, you know, it's very difficult to. To predict because none of us have been here before so none of us are experts but we both kind of can look at things logically um obviously we've, we've cancelled park life yeah um there'll be no festivals happening in 2020 summer yeah it's just obviously not possible um we don't have things in place and we don't know enough at the moment and it's all too it's all too serious at the moment um we looking towards the winter we're hopeful people can get together in one way or another um we can't imagine any large gatherings happening yeah we just can't imagine it you know there's all the things there are things that people are touting around like temperature checks um social distancing um you know sanitizing partitions but none of that is is conducive to our sort of environment you know yeah i think i think it works for a restaurant or an office environment but that i don't think it transfers to, to a nightclub scenario or gig no, scenario does it where people want to be close together yeah you know um once they've had a few drinks they don't they don't feel the same about the rules anymore they don't feel so concerned you know um and you know to get a lot of people into a venue or into a field there's processes that have to happen at quite a reasonable rate so you need to be processing people at x amount of seconds you know yeah through the door otherwise you're not going to get them in um there are you know, there are um, cameras or there are sensors that can check people's body temperature. So, you know, that is there, but it's still not practical because what we're going to do when the alarm goes off, say this person's temperature is above a certain level, we're going to take them out. And it's just not practical. Um, Yeah, I agree. I think if, you know, if someone's paid 20 or 30 pounds upwards and, and they don't know they're suffering from a temperature and then you then yeah. turn around and say to them look i know you spent your hard-earned money on this ticket but i can't let you yeah. in and you know this you know there are things these measures that people are talking about but you, we have to be realistic about what's practical and what's not you know there's no point trying to do these things and just falling down you know yeah. possibly in the winter um with social distancing venues will be able to open some venues um operate up to a certain capacity which realistically we can't imagine much more than 500 capacity but it would need to be socially distanced and then so we're very much not sure you know there are probably some things that can be done we certainly can't imagine putting 10,000 people into a venue like we were last winter. Um, But I'm a strong believer in people are very intelligent and very smart. And I think that our industry in particular are full of doers. Yeah. You know, we find a way, we do, you know, we come up with new ideas, we're inventive. um, And I think people will just look at the situation. Once we know what we can and can't do, you know, until we get a vaccine. Yeah. I think 
I think people will just find a way. There'll be some other way, like the streaming, how streaming has become such a huge thing. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if, um, you know, people don't start making them paid events, you know. Yeah. For example, and I'm not saying this is what's happening because we haven't discussed this, but let's say, um, our, you know, Warehouse Project might put an event on and if you want to come, you have to pay X amount for a ticket. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised if certain huge events start doing that sort of thing yeah. because it just makes sense yeah no i agree i think i think it's a good it's a good angle initially to go down and i know there are some promoters out there who big big promoters festival promoters and long-term friends of ours who um are used to putting on festivals for tens of thousands of people who are now looking at small venues and, and changing the way they think so rather than saying i'll do one ten thousand cap show they'll do 10 venues yeah. 500 cap or they'll do, you know, they'll do that sort of thing, you know, yeah. they will spread, if they normally expect to take X amount home from one big festival, they'll spread it over more small gigs. Yeah. So I think you might just see a bit of diversifying like that, and it, it could be better for the smaller venues, who knows? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think it, yeah, I think it would work, definitely, in the interim period, hopefully. Yeah, you know, obviously, they're saying in Spain that they can, they're going to start events again in June. It'll be really interesting to follow what happens. Yeah, yeah. You know, see how other people do it. Um, but, you know, in my mind as well, it's, what's the difference in 500 people being together or 5,000 people being together? If somebody's got the virus, they've got the virus, you know, and it's still contagious. Yeah, yeah. It's just lower risk, but still... It's the, it's, it's still the, same, it's the same principle, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so. you know... Yeah, it's it's a tricky one. I guess I guess we just have to wait and see what happens. Unfortunately, but uh, there's like you're saying, none of us have experienced it, and none of us know what what to do in this situation. Yeah, and like I said, I'm hopeful that people will find ways, you know, brilliant ways of us moving forward. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, you, you mentioned that you that that you guys have obviously taken a view to cancel Park Life this year. Um, how, how did just talking about park life how did it start and uh because i, I remember going to park life in, in plattsfield park and and then i've also been in in heaton park and it's like chalk and cheese what it's it's yeah. become this huge production uh not yeah. not that plattsfield park wasn't but it just just doesn't feel like it was it's on the same level at all of what mm. it was it, it feels yeah. like this huge extravaganza now um whereas yeah. previously it was a couple of stages uh a couple of burger vans and it was just it, 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 it was nothing like what it is now i think we've been following each other around probably yeah um so um so part life starts in 2010 and at platfields park and we had actually been in festivals for a couple of years by this point so we started Park Life in two, started Warehouse in 2006. In 2008, some guys came to us who had a festival called Kendall Crawley in the Lake District. Okay. And they had this tiny festival, I think it was for like 1,500 people, let's say. Um, and they wanted to take it to the next level and they weren't sure how to do it. So they came to us and said, would you partner with us and help us take it to the next level? So we said, okay, great. We've never done a festival in a field before, but it's all the same, right? Yeah. It's all the same principle. We've, we know how to put events on, this is fine. We've got our warehouse project team, which was myself, Sash, Sam, 
uh, a girl called Kirsty, and I think that was it. Maybe uh, we had a guy, a, a friend of mine called Lee, who did promotions, socials, that sort of thing, which was flyering at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in t- so 2009 was our first go at doing festival. So it was brilliant. It was all new. We all stayed in hotels or little B&Bs in um, the lakes. And we, or it was actually um, Penrith. Ah, I think it's quite Kendall. It was Penrith. Um, And we did the first festival of the field, and it was just a case of, you know, you know know what you need to have. You need tills, you need staff, you need food, you need drink, you need security, and the rest just falls into place. It was a camping festival. So, you know, each time we did Kendall, year on year, and we did it for nine years, it would get better every year. We had a whole year on it. So when it got to 2010, we'd already done one year of festivals so we already had our toe in the water we enjoyed it we kind of thought we know how to do this um so it was actually um a group called mad ferret who started the festival in Parkfields park and it was called mad ferret festival in 2009 and um they'd done this little gathering for, for students yeah nothing not not a commercial thing really um and they wanted they they basically we're struggling financially to make it work. And then about two weeks before it was due to go ahead, Mad Ferret Festival in 2009, they came to us and said, can you help bail us out financially? We need X amount of pounds to buy the beer. We haven't got anybody to do the bars. It's just not working out. And they came to us and they came to Trough, Joel okay. at Trough. Yeah. And um, I think in the end, Joel might have bailed them out that year and helped them. But we'd said, no, it's not for us. It's not enough time. We can't plan it properly. Yeah. We're going to step out this time. So then one year later in 2010, we got together with them and we said, well, listen, we're thinking about doing a proper festival. Would you like to be involved with us? So Mad Ferret came with us. We partnered up and with Joel as well from Trough. And we started Part Life. We also had um, some very long-standing friends and partners of ours. Uh, They were were called Ground Control. They're now called called Engine Number 4. They produce festivals. They build them. so we kind of got around a table and we said, right, let's do this festival in 2010. We'll just do one day. And Mad Ferret, the year before, had been about a thousand, a maximum of a thousand people, maximum. Yeah. We thought, right, we'll go for 20,000. Yeah. Might as well put it out there. Um, we'd been doing bookings for a long time. Warehouse, Sankeys, you know, um, we, you know, we, we thought we've got this. So we did a one day show on the Friday, which was Ian Brown. So we did Neil Brown gig on the Friday, and the Saturday was Park Life. It was the first year of Park Life, one day event. We managed to sell it to about twenty thousand tickets. Yeah. Um, and I think we sold Ian Brown on the Friday to about fifteen thousand. Um, so it was massive, massive sales from year one. Yeah. Um, and we just worked it out. You know, somebody John and his team from the production team drew a site plan. And then we just filled it. And I remember it was the hardest it ever worked um, when we said, we were, right, we were on the project of Part Life. We had three months until Part Life. And I said to Sash, I've got to, I've got to work from home. I can't be interrupted. There's that much to do. So I'd get up in the morning. I'd go to my table, my, which was my desk at the time, my dining table. And I would just work until bedtime. Yeah. And it was like my project at Sofa when I first started Sofa. And I had a list so long it took me months to get through. Yeah. It was the same thing. I started a spreadsheet with tab one. I was like, right, what's the first thing that came to mind? Right, well, we need bar staff. So that would, i start that tab for bar staff. And it took me three months to get to a point where I'd planned everything, got everything in place. Um, 
ready really you know and it was such a such a hard task because there was no manual yeah. none of us had a manual we just had to work through it and work it out and I, I used to dream during that three-month process I'd dream about work I'd do the work in my head in my sleep and I'd wake up and just put it on paper yeah you know I don't think I've had that yeah yeah definitely you know, when your sleep becomes part of your working day Absolutely. you know I did great work in those hours just before you wake up um, and then the euphoria the, that day of park life when it worked yeah you know yeah. Oh my goodness! This has worked. It was just amazing. Um, I guess that's Brown, huge job satisfaction at that point, isn't it? Massive. It's possibly one of the biggest feelings of job satisfaction I've ever had. Was yeah. that day, that first day of park life? Um, you know, we'd never gone through so much beer. Yeah. You know, we'd never seen anything <laughs> like it. The Ian Brown crowd on the Friday drank like I think we went through something like seventy barrels of beer wow. in, between four PM and eight PM wow. on the Friday night and we were just mind blown. Yeah. <laughs> I take it the brewery were happy. Very happy. They shipped the load more for the Saturday for part five. Um so we were at, we were at Platfields for um, 2010, 11, 12, maybe three years we did at Platfields. Okay. Then we moved to Hinton Park. And again, we stayed at Platfields until we couldn't stay any longer because it got so busy. The, the fence lines were just falling down. You know, yeah. the crowd were rocking and just barging everything out of the way to get in. Yeah. You know, we were bursting seams. We couldn't, there was no more park to take. So we moved to Heaton Park. And that was intense that first year we were shell shocks yeah we went um we jumped to fifty thousand the year we went to heaton park wow. from about thirty thousand. Wow. so we you know the difference between thirty thousand and fifty thousand when people are all moving together in one direction when they're hitting the bar it's a massive difference you know yeah it, we, beautiful that, that first year at heaton park the weather was glorious it had always rains previous to that. So yeah. we we were used to the crowd turning up at four in the afternoon. Yeah. We'd always open at 12 and it'd be really slow until four. That first year at Heaton Park, there must have been 30,000 people waiting outside <laughs> and they came in and they were in by 12 o'clock. <laughs> we were just shocked, you know. Yeah. Um, but again, the same team of, basically the same team of work from Park Life since it started, you know, so... People have come and gone, and we've, we've gained some wonderful, wonderful, very talented people. But there's a core element of us who's been there since it started and, you know, watched it grow 10 years, you know. Um, so it's just, it's become this huge, you know, huge, amazing production. It's massive. We've got so many stages and multi million pound lighting rigs, and, you know, it's just an amazing thing. Yeah, no, it is, and it's it's almost like the uh, the the beginning of the uh, festival scene. It comes very early on, doesn't it, in the calendar? It does. And um, Which sometimes makes it difficult for us forecasting the trends of the summer because we're right at the beginning. Well, I was going to say, um, how do you even plan for that, or how do you go about trying to plan for that? Because you know, it, yeah. it can be a nightmare, I guess. It's just, you know, a lot of it is just common sense. And I have never said that I want to have heaps of common sense. <laughs> <laughs> However, it is just a natural thought process. You know, if you look at what happened last year, you look at the market, you look at people's behaviour. We have the winter to look on as well with the Warehouse Project. And yeah. it's Park Life is Warehouse Project presents Park Life. So it's, um, we've got a bit of, you know, insight into what people are doing. But... Um, 
being you know we have to kind of um have conversations we're very we're good friends with most festival operators in the uk and obviously being half owned by live nation now um we have the inside track so yeah um, between us festival organizers we will discuss what are you selling pricing for and what are you selling it for right okay so we'll set it like this and Sometimes we'll even share menu boards or, you know, yeah. we'll discuss sponsorship deals between ourselves, Lovebox, you know, other festivals. Um, so we're all very much connected. No, it's good. It's good. And and, and obviously, like, like you're saying, it's all festivals have been cancelled this year. Yeah, it's very tough. You know, it's hard because, and it's the same for everybody. So, you know, we're in no more of a difficult position, but... Our industry is full of freelancers and small businesses, you know, and so many, it's like the festivals are a, a big whale and all the small businesses are like the little fish that follow the whale, you know, yeah. like the traders who, basically, people who work in our industry tend to go on the road in May, starting this weekend, because this weekend is really when the first few festivals start. Yes, yeah. Um, starts this weekend and then they're on the road until september mid-september when the last festival finishes and they earn their entire year's money in that period of time so you know that that's down to the crew the people who work for the fencing companies um you know the forklift drivers the lighting companies they're, they're on the road for months and they save they save they work on site they live on site so it's it's very difficult because all these people now are thinking how am i going to get through the winter yeah yeah it's, it's, it's the same principle with uh, we have some clients who who have huge wedding venues and you know the, the wedding season has been completely you know decimated by, by by this same problem where they work from easter up until kind of september um you know and i was speaking to them and they said look we, we've had to cancel all weddings up until august at the moment and then we have to and then they said well look we'll take a view at what happens after august but i guess it's a similar principle to your industry but not on your level yeah and um, we're just you know we like to be good people as much as possible we want to support the people who have worked with us for years you know you know our suppliers have stuck with us since the sankey's years you yeah know. yeah we're all the same people same suppliers so we're doing the best we can to support as many people as possible um but you know when there's no events there's no nothing to give anybody yeah yeah well Fingers crossed, we can uh, we, we can maybe see a Park Life Festival next year. Oh, yeah, I mean, yes, very much so. We really, really hope that next summer we're back on track. You know, um, everybody's just definitely waiting for that. Yeah, no, it, sh- it should be good. It should be good. Uh, okay, and and um, be- being being a woman in business and, and and being in the live music industry, is have you ever faced any challenges because? Uh, I've spoken to some women and they've faced different challenges in the hospitality business, which is probably a bit different from from festivals and club scene, but how, how has it been for you? Um, I've never really... Well, I'm, I'm a very positive person. I, I feel like I've never had any issues. Yeah. Times when, um, you know, certain men have struggled to follow my lead because sure. I was very young in a position of authority so um when and being a bit of a jobsworth as well you know yeah. our industry is full of guys slightly older at times um or well, I've been around a lot of older guys in our industry um and I've been this young jobsworth who's come in really good at spreadsheets yeah <laughs> and it hasn't always gone down so well so um 
in the early days, you know, when we started Park Life, I had to recruit lots of managers um, to run all the bars. You know, yeah. we wanted to have well-reputable, known managers from around Manchester. So first year of Park Life, I think, we got together and said, who can we employ? And we looked at all the venues and we got a couple of managers from the Hacienda. Um, we got Leroy from One Central Street. We got people from around town. So actually, as it happens, most bar or most venue managers work for me at some point over yeah. the years. Yeah, I know majority of them really, really well. Yeah. Um, and some of them struggled. I've had to sack a few over the years because they just couldn't, couldn't listen to me, couldn't follow my, my leads. At the end of the day, I'm in charge, and I had to say to myself at one point, stop trying to make it work for this person. They're not working for me within my team. They're rude, you know, they're really struggling, so just get rid. And A, it's not, I'm not so keen on giving up like that. But, yeah. you know, on a few occasions, I just have to say, right, you're not right for my team, so, you know, you're going to have to move on. Um, but I think maybe because they weren't, I don't know, I've just always been in a fortunate position to be, you know, there weren't many other people to challenge me you know i was always in that position next to sasha's side yeah. we were doing this we were running this festival and i've always I, I pride myself in working well with people so i will always maybe go a little bit of an extra mile to make things work unless it the sort of person just is just not ever going to work on my team you know yeah. um i've been very fortunate i've not had you know many closed doors yeah. that i haven't been able to negotiate my way through yeah Oh, that's good. You that's know, good. I think it, you've got to sometimes be patient, you know. Um, and yeah, you know, I like to think our industry is is supports women. Definitely, yeah, I, I agree. And I think I think it's key what you said. It's it, you know, it's a team sport, isn't it? It's it yeah. really is. It's it's not just one person in in all these restaurants, bars, live event, live events. It's it's how strong the team is. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, sometimes if somebody's just not playing ball, you have to just accept, you know what, this person's not right. I'm not going to be able to get the best out of him. I like, I am, um, I'm a big fan of a book called The One Minute Manager. Okay. Um, it's a, and it, the, the, the point of the book, in short, is um, everybody's different. And, you know, to get the best out of you is not the same way of getting the best out of you. So I give this book to everybody that work, everybody that works for me as a manager. I give them this book and say, read this, because I think this is really important. You need yeah. to understand how everyone ticks and how everyone's different and to get the most out of them. So for me, I always try and do that. So to accept, I'm never going to be able to get something good out of this person. Yeah. You know, for me, it's like, that's the last resort. No, that's, that's a good position to take. You know, that's yeah. really good. That's really good. Yeah. I remember once, and this is a this is a wild story, not a good story. <laughs> I I held a um, a bar manager's park life meeting, so I got all these managers from around Manchester into one room. Most of them came, even though everyone had busy you know schedules. But one manager, this one particular guy who I sacked on this day, um, he couldn't make it, so he skyped in. <laughs> and whilst so I'm stood at the front of a room, I've got all these, and again, I'm probably only 25, so I was nervous, you know. I have 10 of the most prominent bar managers in Manchester, all in this room. They're all manks, you yeah. know, they're all a bit rough on the edges. Um, <laughs> and then I've got this other one who's really well known, never going to say his name, on yeah. Skype. And I've got the laptop at the front, so everyone can pretty much see him. And he's drinking a glass of wine and smoking and getting more and more wary throughout the meeting. In the end, turn it off. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I was about to say, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure you didn't work with him again. No. <laughs> right, well, that was cool. That was pretty cool. Um, okay. Well, look, you've you've every year with probably actually probably more park life than warehouse projects. I I look at the lineup and I think, Jesus Christ, how have they managed to uh, get this person? Or I think a couple of years ago that. I was like, Gee, how the hell have they got Snoop Dogg to Manchester? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you've had some huge high-profile acts and guests. And, um, you know, is, is there any is there any favourites or is there any crazy stories with some of those huge names? Um, well, most of the crazy stories we can't tell. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> We've thrown lots of parties for huge artists all over, um, you know, We've been thrown out of, a, you know, we're barred from a few hotels because of the way, you know, the parties, some of the headline artists have, you know, had yeah. at the hotels. Um, some crazy stories. I mean, one story that I really like. Um, so we, so some of the artists, some of the, the big artists get themselves there on time. They're very professional. They they know the school, you know, they're there to work. Um, it's often some of the smaller, mid-level, mid-level to smaller artists who yeah. are the hardest work. Yeah. So we have... We have uh, a group of drivers who work for us, and they've also worked for us for many years. One in particular called John, John Kane, amazing guy. He's been doing our driving. Um, he knows all the artists as well now. He's been doing it since the Sankey's days. He bangs on hotel room doors. He literally drags the artists out of bed. Yeah. <laughs> stands there next to them whilst they get dressed, <laughs> get into the car, turn up at the venue, um, drags them from the airports when they're late, they miss their flights, you know. Um, but there was one occasion he went to pick up Grandmaster Flash yeah, from, right. I, think, I think he was at the John, Great John Street Hotel, uh, possibly. Uh, he was in a hotel anyway, and John had gone to pick him up. And Grandmaster wouldn't come out of his room <laughs> because he said, I'm not going outside, there's a huge crowd outside, and I'm just not up for it. They're all, they're, all my fans are there. So John was <laughs> like, no, I, you know... I really don't think you need to worry. I don't think they're there for you. And he was like, no, no, I've seen them. They're all my fans. You know, I know my fans when I see them. <laughs> so it took John absolutely ages to coax him out of his hotel room. So like, got his hood up, uh, sunglasses on, came out of the hotel, and everyone completely ignored him. Not one person <laughs> looked his way. And they were all there to take that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh, that, that, that's good. Um, yeah, you know... Um, so many stories it's hard to tell no i can um, i can imagine but there have been many and i'm probably not allowed to tell them <laughs> that's right <laughs> so maybe, I, I, I don't want to get you I, yeah don't want to get you in trouble <laughs> yeah yeah don't want to get in trouble um okay and and that well, what are your thoughts on the club scene and the music scene now in manchester before the lockdown because it's it's i, I guess from when i was at uni in manchester it's it's definitely changed from uh, a nightclub scene to then, you know, kind of spinning field started and uh, Northern Quarter at the time, well, Northern Quarter 10 years ago, it was this real push to kind of cocktail bars and, um, and, and I don't know, kind of, I feel like Manchester's not stopped the nightclub thing, but it's kind of moved more towards a bar scene and a lounge scene at times uh, yeah. whereas the warehouse project has always been there um, yeah. for, for those club goers but what what are your thoughts on that because you're in that well I think that um, 
obviously as the years have gone by there's more and more bars and restaurants and you know small venues and um i think people have just got a lot more choice and you know it's great that manchester has developed you know it's great that we've now got spinning fields and northern quarter is completely booming and we've got ancoats you know all this is just a benefit and i think great music has spread out now so rather than when like when i was at uni if i wanted to listen to music and it wasn't in a club, you'd go to a jukebox in a pub, Yeah. you know. Now there's a great DJ on in every venue in Manchester. All the restaurants tend to have a DJ, or yeah. a lot of the restaurants have got a DJ playing at the weekend, you know. Um, there's bands on everywhere, you know. Music, and live music and DJs has very much become one of the key ingredients to what people expect on a night out. Um, I think maybe people, um, not everybody's so keen on um, the the environment of a club so dark very loud you know myself included even though i work in music and warehouse projects you know when i go out i want to be able to talk to somebody yeah. i still want really i still want really good music you know um and i really hate this about myself but i find i am a music you know if, if, if there's pop playing in the background i'd probably be like oh this is pumping my style a bit you know yeah. um, i think even when we go for dinner we want to hear good music yeah. Um, I think a lot of great artists are not only playing in venues like Warehouse Project now. You've got Yes in Manchester, the venue yeah. just off Oxford Road, yeah. and that has some absolutely brilliant lineups, you know. Yeah. Um, so I think if you find smaller venues doing good bookings as well. Yeah. So I think we've just got a lot more choice now. Um, yeah. Obviously, it's going to be a slow return after the lockdown, um, you know, and we know that the hospitality industry is going to be the last yeah. to the table yeah. um, but I think what we have got on our side is you know hospitality and entertainment is always the one thing that brings people together and when we can go out in whatever respect that looks like when we can have dinner out whether it's on very di- distant tables whether it's in an outdoors environment you know you know whatever that looks like people are going to go at it 150% yeah definitely I think uh, and, and like you're saying you know is as, as cliche as it sounds, you know, m- music definitely brings people together. It's um, it's just it's, it's just one of those things, isn't it? I, you know, I can vividly remember after the after the arena attacks, you know, and e- even the park life event after that. You know, I think uh, yeah, you know, I I wasn't really up for going to park life with, with a few of my friends, and they were like, "Come on, we'll be all right. We'll just go and check it out." Um, but yeah, it was it was. It was probably one of the best times I've ever had at Park Life. It was good fun. Somebody told me, and I, you know, I apologise if I've got my facts wrong, but someone told me after the when when the war was up, the people who didn't have to enlist in the army were people involved in entertainment. Oh wow! Okay. Um, entertainment's the one thing that keeps people's morale. Yeah. yeah you know, it keeps people, you know, um, happy and entertained at the weekend. So I think it, during tough times, people are well aware entertainment is key. Yeah. No, I agree. It's uh, it's, it's a great uh, mood changer, and you know, it lifts everyone's spirits, doesn't it? Yeah, it certainly does. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to Hacienda tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> no, it should be good. It should be good. Uh, okay. Uh, well, look, we won't take too much longer, but uh, last couple of questions. Um, so, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give uh, young Kim starting off at uh, actually, let's actually at Sofa in Fallowfield. So, uh, what what if you had a time machine? You could travel back in time. What what advice would you give yourself? 
So if I could give myself some advice, it would be to not only focus on work and do gymnastics. Okay. So I've, I've been a gymnast since most of my life and I stopped when I went to uni okay. because just life got in the way. Yeah. And um, I stopped throughout my entire career until I became 30. Yeah. And um, after Victoria Warehouse and the intense pressures of work and it all became overwhelming, I just, I heard about a, like a gym for adults in Didsbury and I was like, oh, I'm going to go and check this out. I mean, I've not done it since I was 18, yeah. but I'm going to go anyway. And I rediscovered gymnastics in my 30s and it has just changed my life. Yeah. And it has made the stresses and strains of work completely balanced. Yeah. So yeah. if I had to give myself advice, it would be to balance life and work. Because yeah. if you if all you've got is work, it's too much. It's too overwhelming when things get tough. Yeah. You need something else to spend just as much time thinking on. Um, and something like gymnastics, or like I love gymnastics. Yeah. So something like a hobby or a sport is perfect balance. And it just means regardless of how stressful your day is, you're really excited to finish work to then go and do something else. Yeah, no, I agree. I think I think it's really important having that that balance and, uh, you know, for your mental health and physical health, It's it just completely lifts you, doesn't it? Yeah, I think, you know, sometimes it's necessary to be a workaholic, as they say, but it's not balanced and it's not healthy long term. Yeah. From yeah. what we're talking, you know, for yeah. years. Yeah, no, I understand that. I understand that. No, it's good. I, I have something similar. I played basketball all the way up and through until university, stopped at university and then uh, started again a couple of years ago. And, and, and it's great fun, you know, in playing a team sport. It's uh, it's so it's something so different from your nine to five. It's it's a good way just to forget about the day, isn't it? I completely agree, you know, and some of my really good friends now, I've met at gymnastics and, you know, it's a great way to make friends and socialise and, you know, just feel great. Yeah, good, good. Okay. Uh, and, and finally, if you could uh, host a dream house party or, or club night, uh, you could have five musicians, DJs, artists, living, dead, past, present, who, who would they be? So they would have to be. I've got four and I've got okay. a fifth, but my main four would be Bob Marley. Okay, nice. Lauren Hill, who is my all-time favourite artist. Okay. Um, David Bowie, who oh, I absolutely love. He's a legend, yeah. <laughs> and Prince. They would be my. They would be my. My guests. That, that's that's a pretty impressive lineup. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, and now Rogers as well. Okay. Uh, now okay. Rogers in there. Okay. Who, and he knows he knows them all anyway, so he would. You know, <laughs> He <laughs> round them all up for you. He no. round them all up. Yeah, you know, there's a link there. <laughs> no, it's good. All right, fantastic. Well, look, him. Th thanks a lot for your time and. Uh... Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for inviting me.